The ascent to 10,000 feet seemed to take hours, and as we climbed, the weird out-of-body calm I'd felt on takeoff seeped away. It was like coming out of shock, losing that numbed protection and feeling the full pain of an injury for the first time. Only instead of pain, I felt a terror that rose through my body until it reached my lungs and my throat and my brain and threatened to choke me. Barry, behind me, sensed my growing tension. No surprise since we were pressed together like a pair of losers on a sled. He squeezed my shoulder periodically and pointed out landmarks below. As we neared jump height, the Cessna circled around a large cloud, skirting its edge. You might be a lucky girl and get a cloud jump, Barry said. I did not want a cloud jump. The pilot announced that we were nearly in position for Neil and Matthew's jump. They shimmied towards the gaping hole where the plane's door should have been and nudged themselves awkwardly into a spooning crouch on the lip of the doorway. Seeing them inch towards open space was nauseating, and I looked away. I couldn't watch them vanish into the sky. I stared at the plane's riveted metal wall instead. The pilot dipped the plane slightly to the right, tipping and kneel, kneel, sorry. The pilot dipped the plane slightly to the right, tipping Neil and Matthew out the door, and then, liberated of their combined 270 pounds, the Cessna sprang back suddenly to the left. My stomach clenched and jerked, and I swallowed hard. Now it was our turn. Barry directed me to roll over and scuttle into position as the pilot got us lined up for another jump. My breath came fast. I struggled for control. I desperately wanted to shout, No, no, I changed my mind. I don't want to do this. I clenched my jaw. I knew that if I said the word, they would take me back down to the ground, keep my money, and let me walk away. The whole day would be for nothing. Welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast, sponsored by Pantera Press. Good Reading is a monthly magazine dedicated to books and reading and aims to help readers discover their next favorite book. You can find out more about the books discussed on today's podcast at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. Hello and welcome back to the Good Reading Podcast. I'm Max Lewis and today we're joined by Eva Holland, a Canadian journalist hailing from Whitehorse and Yukon, telling us about her debut book, Nerve, Adventures in the Science of Fear. Using the author's own phobias as a case study, the book takes a deep dive into how and why fear works, the ways it affects the body and the mind to enable us to survive, or, as the case may be for some, completely incapacitate us. Above all, Eva Holland shows us how you could potentially rid yourself of your greatest fears. Eva, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. So when you originally set out on your journey to discover the science behind your acrophobia, your fear of heights, was it always the plan in the back of your mind to write a book about it, or did that come out a bit later? It started as a personal project. I just wanted to fix it for my own reasons, um, both social social life reasons, you know, being that my friends were always playing in the mountains and I was having a lot of trouble tagging along. Mm. Um, and then professionally as well, being being a magazine writer who focused on extreme sports and outdoor adventure, it was um, kind of debilitating to to have these limitations on me. So it started out as just being for me and then morphed into a book project over time. And you mentioned that you your writing involves extreme sports and things like that, and also your, your friend group has some sort of uh, more extreme hobbies. Were you aware of the of your fear of heights when you sought out that kind of career and those kinds of activities? I didn't really know. No, I know that sounds silly that I didn't know I was afraid of heights. But yeah. It's, um, it's 
it's triggered very specifically by a sense of exposure, like I could fall, so steep slopes, a sense of dangling. Uh, but I'm okay on bridges and in elevators and in airplanes. Um, so I didn't know until I moved to, to Whitehorse, where I live in the Yukon Territory in northern Canada, a little over a decade ago, you know, c- coming from flatlands, essentially, I, I didn't realize that I had a problem with uh, with that kind of exposure. And um, in my in my digging of, of your book, I found that it was originally titled um, Shake It Off. What inspired the change to Nerve? It was because I think the book sort of grew in the writing. I originally pictured something that was specifically about how to get over your fears and 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 so the idea of, of shaking it off, um, and, I, and I am a little bit of a Taylor Swift fan, um, <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> uh, seemed to seemed to capture what I was about. But then the book grew to be not just about getting rid of fear, uh, but about something bigger than that. And so uh, it was my editors who kind of said, you know, this isn't really capturing capturing the essence of the thing at this point. And we started brainstorming again and, and came up with Nerve, which I, I really love the title we ended up with. So the book was originally more of a self-help kind of kind of thing, but then it, did you plan for it to become more of a deep dive into the science side of fear, or was that something that sort of came out organically? I always intended for the science to be there, but I thought it'd be really more narrowly focused on the science of of curing fear. Yeah. Um, and by the end, by the end of the project, I had sort of not rejected the original premise, but it was no longer about finding a cure in the same single-minded way that it had been at the start. You know, I, I end up having a really different perspective on what fear means and why it matters uh, by the end of, of all my research than I did at the start. Hmm. And uh, Nerve is your first book, but as you mentioned, you've written plenty of uh, magazine articles and long-form articles throughout your career. How different was the process of writing a book to that? How was it challenging for you? It was it was both frightening and liberating at the same time, I guess. Uh I did try to I made when I designed the the book outline in my proposal, I designed the chapters to be fairly discreet, um, sort of thematic chunks mm. rather than a big big overarching narrative because I thought that would be less intimidating for me to say, Okay, now you have to write ten magazine articles. <laughs> um and so that was sort of how I tried to think about it in my mind to keep from psyching myself out too much. Um, and it was scary to just sort of have this blank document and a, and a contract to write, you know, 70,000 words or whatever and, um, and have it all be on me. But that was the liberating part too. I, I love working with magazine editors and, and being a part of a team and being a part of a larger issue. And, but it's, writing a book was my thing in a, in a way that, that I don't feel about my magazine work. And, mm. and that was, that was cool to feel like I had sort of the more power over the project. I wasn't working for a client who was, you know, going to pay me if they like it and not if they don't, um, <laughs> in the same way. <laughs> and as we said, it's, the book is sort of a mixture of, uh, self-help style, but it's also very much a, uh, sort of experiential journalistic look at fear and phobias and things like that. And to that extent, some readers have compared it to the works of people like Mary Roach. Was she an inspiration in writing the book? She was definitely an inspiration. Yeah. I do think the book has, she's always in her books, right? But you wouldn't necessarily call them really personal, Mm. um, they are in the sense that, you know, like she once had sex in an fMRI machine so that 
people could monitor her brain scans, but I mean, that's really personal, but the, the under the surface stuff isn't there as much, I think. And so I, I do sort of warn people that it's, it's quite different than a Mary Roach book in the end, but, but I, I was inspired by her approach to sort of throwing herself into the science. Um, I really like her humor. I, I know it sounds strange because parts of this book are pretty dark, but Mm. I, I wanted it to be funny too. I did. That was definitely part of the plan. I don't know if it worked, but. (laughs) In diving into the science behind fear and anxiety through your research, what was the thing you found that surprised or fascinated you the most? I was probably most surprised by what I learned about trauma. I hadn't known much about that side of things before. I had, I had known more about phobias when I started. Um, and I just, trauma wasn't something I had really thought about a lot. It wasn't something that I associated with my life. I didn't have personal experience with it, I thought. Mm. Learning more about how it works and how it's driven by our memories and how it affects our lives in so many more ways than than the kind of classic example of a soldier coming home from war was, was really eye-opening yeah. for me. Exposure therapy is one way you sort of go about tackling your your fear of heights, and your way of doing that is to go skydiving. Um, but as we find out in the book, it didn't necessarily really fix, so to speak, your fear of heights. Do you think that says more about how your fear of heights affects you personally or the effectiveness of that kind of exposure therapy as a whole? Yeah, I think it's a bit of both. I think that, I mean, skydiving, that kind of sort of shock and awe approach to exposure therapy is not the recommended approach by, by the vast majority of, of, uh, clinicians. Um, you know, the, the, the goal of sort of proper exposure therapy is to be, to be incremental, to build slowly on your successes. Um, and, and the skydive was the opposite of that. I don't think it did me any harm, but it didn't do me. I sort of thought I could prove to myself that I had that I had nothing to fear from from heights, yeah. and it, it didn't didn't work at all. But but I also think exposure therapy, in the classic sense, does have its limits. You know, it's effective for some people, but it's gradual, it's painful, and I think there's a real question, depending on how people's fears are affecting them, of if it's if it's if it's worth the effort, you know? It seems like it's more likely to create more trauma than it is to prevent any future trauma from that particular phobia. It can be, yeah. You know, a lot of people ask me, like, what's wrong with avoidance? Why, why not just, de- you know, detour around the things that, uh, that cause us to panic and meltdown rather than facing them over and over again? It can feel like hitting your head against the wall. Mm. That point brings me to one of my later questions, which was um, that you, you sought treatment for your fear of heights because, as you said, it was impeding your work as a writer as well as your activities with your friends. Do you think fears like acrophobia are worth treating if they aren't actively impeding everyday life? Mm. I think it's really an individual call on mm. whether or not you feel like your life is being impaired to a point where it's worth taking taking action and dealing with, you know, the expense potentially and the and the pain of trying to deal with with the situation. Um it's it's a judgment call, you know, the example I give in the book of the woman who was afraid of mice if she was afraid of mice, but she only freaked out when she actually saw a mouse, then probably there's no need to treat that fear, right? Because she didn't mm. see mice very often or, or, or ever once her, once she, you know, made sure there were no mice in her house. But it was because she was living in fear of seeing a mouse and, 
and and unable to put her feet on the floor in the dark and 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 lying awake at night when when it starts to bleed into your life in those ways and really start to cause harm i think that's when it's time to try to to fix it and that's that's the call that everybody has to make is where is that line for me another one of your phobias that the book addresses is that of car crashes and one technique that proved effective in treating that was the sort of experimental eye movement desensitization and reprocessing therapy, or EMDR. Are you able to tell us a little bit about that and how it worked out for you? Sure. EMDR was invented or discovered, however you want to want to look at it, in the in the late eighties in in Northern California. Of course, um, seems like a very California therapy to me. But um, uh, it's one of a number of newish trauma therapies that we that we have. Many of which have been developed. Um, as a result of, of the wars in the Middle East over the last few decades. But EMDR uh, involved a therapist prompting you to move your eyes back and forth rapidly from side to side in a kind of a steady rhythm. Uh, originally, it was done with a the therapist wagging her finger in front of your eyes, and now they typically use headphones that beep or, or sort of buzzing pods that vibrate in your hands. And this prompts your eyes to move back and forth, and the therapist talks you through the event or events that are causing your distress, the memories that you're having, the flashbacks, whatever the case may be. And something they don't, they know that it works. It's been, it's been proven to be more effective than the placebo effect in numerous clinical trials. They don't know exactly how, but something about the eye movement seems to uh, sap those traumatic memories and intrusive thoughts and, and, and flashbacks and, and paranoia and, and vigilance and all of that seems to sap it of its power. And so I think of it as like um, my memories of my car accidents were like files sticking out of a filing cabinet and jamming the drawer open when you try to close it. Um, and so it was like EMDR put the files away properly and then the drawer could close. And mm. I can still remember my car accidents, but now when I'm driving, the memories don't leap out and grab me by the throat and cause me to cry or hyperventilate or picture of a car rolling over into the ditch or all of all of that stuff that was happening to me before the EMDR resolved it uh, remarkably effectively I didn't I didn't expect it to work so well it, it sounds so strange it's a very strange experience and what's the state of that uh, treatment style today has it kind of uh, expanded its its influence on are more people starting to use it yeah it's now a widely accepted widely used therapy. It was pretty fringe through the 90s, I would say. And then into the first decade of the 2000s, the evidence was piling up that it, that it worked. And now it's, it's, it's pretty close to mainstream, I would say. Certainly um, among you know, clini- clinicians, it's, it's considered pretty normal. It still seems pretty out there to the general public if you're not up on the latest yeah. therapies. But, uh, but it, is, it is widely accepted now. And they're still trying to figure out, I, I found a number of papers where they're trying to work on understanding the mechanisms of, of why it does what it does. You know, we know that um, we have our REM sleep at night where our eyes move back and forth. We know that's tied to our memory storage and formation processes somehow. It's not fully understood. Maybe there's something there. Um, nobody really knows, but they are working on it. They're trying to piece it together. And another treatment that you tried for your acrophobia involved taking a, a beta blocker and exposing yourself to heights uh, via a, the, tr- the crane on a fire truck. Um, can you tell us about that experience 
And I was also curious yeah. if the effects of that treatment have held up since that experience. Yeah. So um, there's a clinician in the Netherlands who um, basically has taken some recent neuroscientific research and applied it in her clinical practice. Um, this research suggested that when we call up our memories from, from storage, for lack of a better term, and put them away again, there's a protein synthesis process involved in that action. And beta blockers uh, disrupt protein synthesis. So they knew, for instance, that they could disrupt uh, fear conditioning in rats using, um, using beta blockers. And so what uh, this woman, uh, Meryl Kent, did in Amsterdam is she would, she would trigger, uh, she started triggering people's phobias um, quite strongly, um, putting them into a, a pretty high level of distress, triggering their memories of past panics in the process. And then she gives them uh, a dose of propranolol, which is a common medication for blood pressure. People take it for stage fright. Under ordinary circumstances, it just sort of slows your heart rate down a little and calms you. Mm. But when it's paired with this triggering, uh, and that's where sort of the execution of it gets dicey, is that you have to be sort of triggered in the right amount, but not too much. And if you started to, to make new memories, it's, it's a, it's a, it seems to be a bit of a, a judgment call there. But, but if it works, the pill disrupts this protein synthesis of you putting those memories away. And it seems to snap the connection, sever the connection between your past panics and your future panic. And so ordinarily, you, you know, ordinarily if I'm exposed to heights, I, I go down this same channel in my brain that I've always gone down of, of panic, dismay, terror, and the pill sort of rerouted me into a new path of, of calm, hmm. um, is the best way I can explain it. It sounds very sci-fi. Um, but one day I was up in this, you know, ladder truck at this fire station, barely able to stand up because my knees were shaking. And the next day I was fine. I was taking selfies and it has held up so far. I haven't tested it extensively. I've been a little nervous to test it. It's, yeah. it's a little scary to think that enough, I might, I think. might, you know, <laughs> but, uh, I did, I go zip lining at the end of the book and, and was totally fine. And then, uh, last summer I did a hike that included, um, summiting a, a really steep, pretty sheer mountain pass, like, you know, a pass in name only. Um, and I thought I would go over it on my hands and knees sobbing. And I was able to go over it upright, feeling calm, you know, a bit cautious, but you should be cautious on a really sheer slope. Um, and uh, it was amazing. I never expected to be able to to be that calm. I, I should test it more. Sort of what what is the point of getting that cure if I don't use it, right? But but it's been a little scary to think about wearing it out somehow or something. Well, do you think you might one day put it to the ultimate test and perhaps go skydiving again? <laughs> I thought about that. I thought about finishing the book with another skydive. But I'm still me, you know, even yeah. though I've made some improvements in how fear affects my life, I don't think I'm ever going to be, I'm still the same person. And the idea of skydiving, I don't think will ever be fun to me. It might be something that I could endure with better grace a second time. <laughs> but uh, I'm, I think 
part of what I've figured out is is picking my moments a little bit and mm. figuring out when I want to sort of stare down my fears and when I just want to live my life in a way that it's enjo- that is enjoyable. Well, while the book is for the most part about tackling fear, a part of the book also mentions how fear is a very necessary survival trait. And you give a few personal examples of you and your friends dealing with um, some sort of creepy men and how your responses to those situations may have potentially saved your lives. In your experience with these treatments like EDMR and the beta blockers, and your research into those treatments, do they have the potential to limit fear responses that could arise in actually life-threatening situations? I don't think so, no. I think that they're really targeted at helping you let go of irrational overreaction. Hmm. And and actually what that does is it lets you learn to listen to the true reactions. Because when when I spent all these years saying, don't listen, don't listen, don't listen, ignore it, it's not real, you know, sort of losing that argument sometimes, but trying to convince myself not to overreact to things, it meant that I didn't trust my instincts and I didn't trust my fear because I, I, it had led me astray so many times. But once you can clear the decks of the, the overreactions, it leaves you in a place where you can learn to really trust the reactions that are true. Um, and I think that's, that's sort of why I say that, that in the end, I no longer thought about it in terms of conquering fear but more about you know changing my relationship to fear mm. to be a healthier one well on that on that note the book has um the case study of patient sm who um through a, a variety of means she doesn't feel fear for the most part i was curious if how did she deal with potentially life-threatening situations given that she didn't have that fear response mm. she is totally calm in life-threatening situations. She has had a gun held to her head, and she didn't flinch. She didn't feel afraid. Um, she doesn't feel afraid when she looks back on it, so it's not just like she was sort of in shock in the moment. She has no no real sense of personal self-preservation at all. And that sounds kind of amazing on the surface until you realize um, that that means that she's, you know, she's been beaten and and assaulted and um, taken advantage of. She doesn't have skepticism. She doesn't, um, she's not good with money because she has no fear of consequences. She sometimes forgets to eat. It's it's a really hard way to live, actually, being, being literally fearless because fear is this really important boundary in our lives. Yeah, I think a lot of people with phobias would be like, wow, I wish, or even anxiety would be like, you know, I wish I didn't have this, uh, this thing kind of holding me down. But it is, it is good to remember that in many circumstances, it is very important to feel afraid and to be anxious. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have found it helpful to be reminded of that. It's, it's, hard, to, it's hard to hang on to sometimes when you're, when you're you know, spiraling into panic. But it's, I, try to re- I try to think about patient SM and, and how hard her life has been. That kind of brings me to my my concluding question, which was, as somebody who has, to an extent, faced their fears and come out the other side, do you have any advice or words of wisdom for listeners who might be struggling with fear or anxiety during these times? Mm-hmm. I think the first thing is is to know that fear is fear and anxiety are are natural. They're they're not just natural; they're necessary. Mm. Um, you know, there's so much, I always had so much shame around this stuff. I was embarrassed when I would, you know, cry if I was hiking <laughs> in front of my friends. It was horrifying. Um, it's your body telling you to stay alive. And so 
I think just removing some of that shame can help, can be a first step, um, even if it doesn't actually reduce your fear and anxiety levels right away. Just not piling embarrassment on top can, can sort of make the load more bearable. And particularly at this time, you know, it's very understandable to be afraid and anxious. It's natural. And also it is something that can be worked on. You know, if, if you are feeling like it's too much, it's, it's um, these kinds of overreactions are impairing your life in those ways we talked about. There are things you can do and there are things people can help you with um, to make it better. It, it is it is more changeable than we think. Well, that's, uh, yeah, it's very good advice to take to heart at this time. Eva, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. 